Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And we're here Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays exploring the big money issues in the world of sports, talking to some of the biggest players in the industry, and one of the most interesting and important stories we and many others have been following is the highly publicized and long-running lawsuit between members of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team and the U.S. Soccer Federation. It's all about equal treatment and equal pay. This month, players have agreed to settle claims over working conditions, and they're going to look to appeal a ruling related to pay. As I mentioned, long running really captures this. Here's what Megan Rapino, arguably the best known star in the women's game, said last July. I think that we can do a lot more, a lot more quickly. I think that it is a complicated issue, and I think sometimes we get in the weeds about it. Can't see the forest for the trees right. when, you know, big sponsors can just write the check. Um, these are some of the most powerful corporations, not just in sports, but in the world, and have so much weight that they can throw around. Um, and I think that they just need to get comfortable throwing it around. And that's Megan Rapino speaking on Meet the Press in July of 2019, shortly after another big win for the women's national team. Well, one person who has been right in the middle of all this Cardell Spangler. She's a partner at Winston & Strawn. She joins us from Chicago. This is the law firm that has represented the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team in this legal fight. Cardell, really nice to have you with Lynchy and me. As I said, we've been following this story very closely, twists and turns to say the least, but this is a big moment, an important moment, not the last part of the fight, but a big deal. Tell us what we need to know about where we are right now. Um, sure. Well, I think long running uh, first is uh, an appropriate description of this of this matter. Um, as many of your viewers may know, this actually started almost four and a half years ago uh, when we first filed um, charges of discrimination with the EEOC. So that was in 2016, um, and you know this fight is is still going on. Um, but this is a big a big step forward um, in resolving the working conditions claims. So for your listeners, that means um, claims around charter flights and playing surfaces like grass versus turf and hotel accommodations. You know, the women have taken a big step forward in being treated at least equally to the members of the men's national team. So, Cardell, I know this uh, an unsettled uh, part of this equation here, and that is uh, equal compensation. Tell me why the judge denied that and, and what is uh, happening going forward from there. Yeah, uh, so just as a, a little bit of background, um, the claims that we filed on behalf of, um, of these champion women uh, were really twofold. One, uh, 
part of it was the pay discrimination claim. So uh, we alleged that the players um, had been denied equal pay, and we believe that that is, that that is true. Um, and then the second part of that was uh, the working conditions claim, so that not only were they not being paid equally, but they weren't being treated equally with respect to other terms and conditions of employment, like, as I said, you know, playing surfaces and hotel accommodations and professional support and other things. Um, the judge had uh, a split ruling uh, in May of this year um, on whether or not um, the pay claims and the working conditions claims should go to trial. And he ruled on the pay claims um, that the case uh, should should not go to trial, um, and effectively, you know, terminated that pending appeal um, for you know a few different reasons. Um, but largely, he didn't find you know that the players had put forth um, enough evidence at this point to be able to to move their pay claims forward. He did, however, find that the players put forth enough evidence um, at this point in litigation to move forward to a trial um, on their working conditions claims. Um, So I just wanted to make sure that we were clear on those two parts. So, Cardell, let's go back a step, if we can, because this in some ways is so high profile, obviously. You come at this from the perspective of a very experienced lawyer around a much broader view of the world than just sports. You know, you've you've worked on pharmaceutical cases and all sorts of discrimination cases. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this. I, I have to say, this has to be a cool assignment, and I want to know sort of how you got into it. Yeah, it's a it's a great case, um, and I've been very privileged to have worked on it um, throughout its life. Uh, so from the very very beginning, um, and you know, I, I got involved. Um, and I will tell you, when I got involved, it wasn't clear to me that this was something that could go forward because it wasn't clear to me that U.S. soccer actually employed both the men's players and the women's players, which is really critical in a case where you're alleging violations of the statutes that we're claiming, uh, Title Seven and the Equal Pay Act. But it became pretty clear that U.S. soccer, in fact, employs both the women's national team players and the men's national team players. Um, and so when that became clear, um, and Jeffrey Kessler, my, my co-lead on this case, uh, also a partner at Winston & Strawn, um, asked me to get involved. He's a sports lawyer. He does a, a lot of, um, of, of various types of sports litigation, but not as much on the employment side. And I'm an employment um, specialist. Um, employment law specialist. So I looked at it from the employment law perspective um, and, you know, with the team decided that this was um, a, a case that was really viable in terms of holding um, a, a sports organization accountable for uh, paying its male and female players um, equally uh, because they perform equal work, at least equal work. Um, and that they should also be treated equally in, in connection with all the other uh, terms and conditions of employment. So that's how I got involved back in 2016, uh, really as uh, an employment law uh, specialist and trying to figure out if this was um, a case that, that could be brought forward in the court. So the pay structure between the men and women, from my understanding, is different. Uh, the women have fixed salaries and the men get only get paid if they play and they have bonuses, but the women do not have bonuses. Is that correct? Um, well, there's been some uh, changes uh, to the pay structures over time, but that is a generally accurate way of um, of stating it. The women um, have a some of the women, not all of them, have a salary, 
and bonuses um, on top of that. Uh, and the men uh, generally have uh, bonuses, uh, minimums for certain games played, and then um, additional bonuses if, uh, depending on whether they win, uh, lose, or tie. And so, uh, Cardell, I mean, obviously publicity and the – and I guess the profile of the team has risen dramatically. It was high in 2016, but by 2019, you know, when you have Rapino as arguably one of the best-known athletes in the world, I mean, sort of her signature move, you know, <laughs> throwing her arms up. This is this is where I'm I'm disappointed that we're doing a podcast because you would see me right now throwing my arms out. Um, you know, I mean, she became both, you know, a preeminent spokesperson, a lightning rod. It became political. How does that play into a, a case like this, you know, sort of the public and the political aspects of it? Does it help? Does it hurt on balance? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> you know, from the legal perspective, um, you know, we try very hard to focus on um, you know, what will resonate uh, with, with the judge and ultimately with a jury. And some of that may take into account, you know, the, the, the public piece of it. Uh, a lot of it, quite frankly, doesn't. But the publicity around it, even the political nature around it, um, has been, I think, on balance, really important because it highlights that even these incredibly famous, accomplished, um, you know, champion women, you know, have to sue their employer um, and, you know, endure, uh, and I will, I use that word deliberately, endure um, a years-long legal battle to try to get what they are entitled to under the law. Um, and so I think that's important for your everyday worker, um, to know that while it is not necessarily an easy battle, um, it's one that you can take on um, and one that you should take on if you believe uh, that you are not being uh, treated appropriately, you know, with your, by your employer. Um, so it, it, it's, it's tough. It's tough to say how that ultimately um, plays out, uh, you know, in terms of the, the court battle. But I think in the court of public opinion, it has been uh, really important for the sports world and, um, you know, the, the work world in general for these women to be uh, so um, generous with their time, uh, with their efforts, and with their, uh, with, with their strategy, with everything uh, to move this matter forward. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. 
Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cardell, back in May, uh, President-elect Joe Biden tweeted out to U.S. soccer, equal pay now or else when I'm president, you can go elsewhere for World Cup funding. Is that taken as just just a rah-rah speech or is that something that uh, might rattle U.S. soccer a little bit? (laughs) Well, that's a great question. (laughs) And I guess you you have to ask U.S. soccer uh, that question. Um, We certainly hope um, that 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 was not a rah-rah speech. Um, this is important. Uh, these women have proven over and over again uh, that they are the best in the world at what they do. Um, they bring in you know, more revenue to U.S. soccer. Um, they, uh, their publicity, their uh, profile is higher than anyone else um, in the U.S. soccer universe. So they, they are not asking to be given anything. They have earned uh, what they are asking for. Um, and so I am hopeful that uh, <laughs> that the, the the potentially rah rah speech, but hopefully it's not, um, will spur you know U.S. soccer uh, you know into to action on the pay plan. Cardell, what role do you think, especially knowing corporations that the way you do, having worked again across the landscape when it comes to em- employment law and and fairness mm-hmm. around compensation? What role do corporations as sponsors play here? You know, we've heard Megan Rapino and others talk about the fact that this is in part a solvable problem by the corporations who ultimately support these sports and support women's soccer specifically. What's the public aspect of that? What's the legal aspect of that in your estimation? The legal aspect of it is, well, let's put it this way. We actually spent a little time with a couple of the, of the, of the uh, sponsors um, in the litigation. We actually deposed a couple of the, of the sponsors. Um, and they were important depositions um, in the sense that uh, to the extent that anyone was claiming <laughs> that the women uh, do not bring uh, equal value, that sponsors are not interested in uh, sponsoring only the women's team, that if they're really basically drafting off of the men's team, that uh, was laid to waste. Um, that the sponsors are very interested in the women's team um, in particular. Um, and because of that, so taking now this outside of the legal piece of it, um, there's a role, I think, for them to play in um, saying to U.S. soccer that you know, equal pay, equal working conditions are so important to them as sponsors that if um, that is not achieved by U.S. soccer, that there could be some ramifications. So it's it, just like with um, news and sponsors or um, corporations and, uh, and, and their uh, advertising dollars, all of those things matter in the end because it means you know, money um, in, in U.S. soccer's coffers. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's important. It's important for sponsors, as Megan said at the top of your program, uh, to um, think about what kind of influence they can have um, outside of the legal um, uh, sphere uh, to help move some of these really important issues forward. And I think we've seen some of them do that. And I think, as Megan said, you know, we would encourage more of them to do the same. 
Cardell, I have uh, three daughters. They're all in their 30s right now, so uh, I'm very sensitive to this issue. Why are we still talking about this in the year 2020? And will we be, will we be talking about it in the year 2120? I mean, is, if, why are we still talking about this? <laughs> I really wish I knew the answer to that. Um, I think we'd all be better off if there were some silver bullet um, that, you know, could be fired to resolve this issue. Um, but, you know, you're talking about, in, particularly in certain industries, very deep-seated beliefs about the value that women bring to something like sports. Um, and they have been undervalued and underappreciated for many, many, many years. And that's not going to be resolved instantaneously, unfortunately. I wish that were the case. Um, but... I think what we're seeing now is the culmination of decades and decades of um, devaluing an entire group of people. And unfortunately, that is going to take a really long time to resolve. This is one step forward. Uh, but there's going to have to be a lot of these steps forward um, in order to ultimately get there. So, Cartel, as, as we wrap up, I mean... Maybe on a slightly optimistic note, I do think about, you know, this decision, which obviously is one in a series that that you're hopeful for. Um, But, you know, I think about the outpouring of, you know, both grief and hope in the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who obviously fought Mm -hmm. so valiantly around these issues as a lawyer and then obviously as a Supreme Court justice. Does it feel like 2020, as awful a year as it has been in so many regards, that we may look back on this as as something of a year where maybe things didn't get solved, but they at least move forward in a more meaningful way? Well, I guess we'll have to see. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to see what the, what the future holds and, and, and how people do look back, you know, on this on this period of time. But I would say, say this. Um, I always am deeply encouraged by people who are willing to fight <laughs> because fighting is not easy, right? It takes a toll. Um, and I think that what we've seen in 2020 is that people are willing to fight on all kinds of different fronts for all kinds of different issues. Um, and the only way that we're going to get lasting, effectual change is for people to, to fight for what they believe in. And we've seen that over and over and over again in 2020. So I do think that there will be some uh, lasting effect of that, not just on uh, this front, but on lots of others. Um, And I hope that, you know, people take that fighting spirit forward into 2021 and beyond um, so that we can start to see even more change. Well, we certainly uh, appreciate your time. We should also note um, that we have reached out to Latham & Watkins. They are representing U.S. soccer on the other side of this uh, litigation and negotiation. They did give a statement uh, to Bloomberg. Uh, this is according to Jamie Wine, one of the partners there. We're pleased that U.S. soccer and the women's national team players were able to work collaboratively to resolve the non-compensation claims of their ongoing litigation. Throughout the negotiations, Latham sought to implement the vision of U.S. U.S. Soccer's new leadership to reinforce the strong relationship between it and the WNT, the women's national team. The settlement reflects U.S. Soccer's continuing commitment to equal treatment of the senior national teams. We hopefully will hear from Latham and Watkins on the other side of that 
on this program next week. This is obviously a very important issue. And uh, as Cardell said, it's not over yet. So lots more to talk about. Cardell, thank you so much. Uh, Happy holidays to you. Best of luck uh, going forward on this. As I said, and I've said a number of times on this program, uh, it's a really important issue. And and we're, uh, we're glad you were able to spend some time with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And you can catch our podcast right here every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And as I mentioned, next Monday, we expect to have the other side of this argument, getting into what equal pay looks like, the argument around equal pay and equal treatment from U.S. soccer's perspective. We will have Latham and Watkins weighing in on that. In the meantime, I'm Jason Kelly. Find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at Lynchy WCBB. And you're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.